0: You're listening to the Derms and Conditions podcast. So here I am with Jeff Donovan from Whistler, British Columbia, Canada, right, for another episode of Derms and Conditions. And I'm really excited. I, I really didn't know much about this guy. Um, I was up early and I'm looking through some videos and I see a video that he did for about an hour and 40 minutes. So I'm thinking, I'll just put this on. I'll probably fall back to sleep in about 10 minutes. I was captivated and learned so much about hair. So Jeff Donovan is a dermatologist. He trained at University of Toronto. He did his medical school training at University of Ottawa in Ottawa, Canada, which is the capital of Canada, right? And he's spent time training a lot in hair disease. And that's what he does in dermatology, only hair. So Jeff, it's great to have you here today. And I'm really looking, looking forward to learning more about hair disease.
1: Well, thanks so much for this invitation. I'm really honored to join you.
0: So why hair? Why hair?
1: You know, hair is fascinating. And um, someone once said to me that, think about the last patient of the day, you're running an hour behind who is the patient that you'd love to go in through the door and see, even though you're an hour behind, even though you're exhausted? And for me, that's a hair loss patient. And it's always an easy decision.
0: <laughs> so that's the opposite of everybody else that sees the, the woman who's 55 years old, has been losing hair for 25 years and comes in at 4.30 on a Friday and says, I'm losing my hair, right? That, that kind of patient, right? Yeah. But, but you welcome that patient. That's, that's fascinating. So what I'd like to ask you about is obviously the hot topic now because we have therapies that are approved. We now have two of them in the United States, and you could shed some light on what's going on across the border up in Canada as far as the therapies that that are available, uh, is alopecia areata. So before we get into the therapies focusing on uh, the Janus kinase inhibitors, and now I know we have a, a tech another type of kinase being inhibited with one of the agents. Are there any tips you have for Jim Del Rosso where maybe it's not alopecia areata and you could get missled into thinking it is and you're treating the wrong disease that you've run into in all your experience?
1: It's a great question. I, I think the first is that um, we have to respect in hair loss that there's a lot of great mimickers and so i think you always have to be humble to the fact that there's lookalikes the first is in children a 4 year old or 8 year old who comes in with alopecia universalis and the parents say it's been like this since he was born or she was born this isn't alopecia areata this is you know a, a congenital genetic issue either vitamin d or uh, atrichy with popular lesions and and that's something that comes up at least once a year or twice a year. So that's the first thing. I think the second is intense symptoms, like what you think is alopecia, but itching and burning and pain or scaling. There are mimickers out there. There's mimickers, CTCL and lymphomas that can mimic alopecia areata. There's some scarring alopecias like pseudopilot and sometimes lichen like planopilaris that sometimes can fool you. And so I think you just have to have a respect that if it doesn't seem to do what you think it should, maybe it's not alopecia.
0: Yeah, that that uh, that happened to me where we thought something was alopecia areata, and with within a couple of visits, and it was a lawyer. It was a judge. <laughs> guy was a judge, really nice guy, but it was it ended up being lichen lycoplan- and it and it fooled me, and it just just wasn't responding right, and then it developed s- some redness and some perifollicular red ret- ret- erythema. These, and and so yeah, you can certainly be fooled. When does a biopsy come into play, and if you do There are so many different techniques that are described in the literature. What do you suggest? When do you do a biopsy to confirm the diagnosis?
1: You know, I think there's a pretty low threshold to doing a biopsy. And so there's nothing. The teaching used to be 10 years ago. If it's a scarring, if you think it's a a scarring alopecia, do a biopsy. Um, For other non-scarring hair losses, it's a little bit less critical. But I think there's a pretty low threshold. Generally speaking, it's a four millimeter biopsy. And I think you really want to send that to someone who enjoys reading pathology of the hair. It's challenging to read hair pathology. And so if it's going to someone who really doesn't look forward to reading this slide, then that's probably not optimal. But um, I think it's really important to choose the pathologist because great information can come from that. And horizontal sections are pretty standard nowadays for for many institutions. And I think they're wonderful, but it probably doesn't matter all that much. What matters is the pathologist reading the slide really finds this intriguing and interesting.
0: How about the site selection where you take the biopsy?
1: I think that the site ideally is somewhere where by using your dermatoscope or trichoscope, you feel this has the features of the disease that I think are relevant. So in lichen planopilaris, perifollicular erythema and scale, if you're not sure and you think it's alopecia areata, but you're just not sure, perhaps an area with uh, broken hairs or areas with uh, exclamation mark hairs or areas that you think is appropriate. Generally speaking, the teaching has changed a bit. And that is that if you feel with trichoscopy that I feel pretty confident what's going on, that biopsies are becoming less essential. And so we don't necessarily need to do a biopsy if after the history, after the exam, after trichos- you know trichoscopy examination, we feel pretty comfortable. Sometimes we can stop there. We have the diagnosis.
0: So is that where you see that yellow dot around the follicle that people talk about That's right. So with alopecia areata, we have the hairs
1: falling out. So we have yellow dots. Alopecia areata is a condition where the hairs break off. So we have broken hairs and those are black dots. Sometimes there are these exclamation mark hairs that we we really like to see, but they're not always present. Um, And so there's a number of trichoscopic features that can be pretty helpful.
0: Okay. Well, that, that, that's helpful. Uh, I'm, I'm one of those people that doesn't like abstract art. I like everything to be crystal clear. So um, I, I, I sometimes struggle with that, but sometimes it's, it's very apparent. So now we feel comfortable about the diagnosis of alopecia areata. And we're not talking about just a few patches, but actually let's start there before getting into systemic therapies, especially uh, these two newer agents. Of the different choices we have other than, let's say, intralesional triamcinolone injection, of the topical choices we have, putting on topical corticosteroids, topical minoxidil, who knows what else, what seems to work the best in your hands when you're treating topically just a few patches of alopecia areata? I always say
1: there's three agents that go a long way in 90% of patients with patchy alopecia areata, and that's topical clobetazole, topical minoxidil, and steroid injections. And for the vast majority of patients, that's all we need. Um, it has to be a class one steroid for the most part, except in children under 10, where maybe you can use beta but generally it has to be clobetazole. Um, and whether it's a cream or a lotion or an ointment is somewhat important, but not critical. What's important is that the patient feels they can do this. And so if they don't like the ointment, but they prefer a lotion, let's do a lotion. We'd rather have them do it than not do it. But generally speaking, I'll have patients use clobetazole once or twice a day for a few weeks, and then we'll have in our minds a need to taper. But often I'll have them apply minoxidil either at the same time or at a different time of the day. And we'll keep that going for a while as the clobetazole is slowly tapered. Um, And if we're able to, we'll we'll bring steroid injections on board. But the thing with patchy alopecia areata is in 80 or 90% of cases, I really expect this hair to be growing back within a few months. So the prognosis is really good.
0: Right. It's interesting what you said, because I remember specifically this adorable little girl. She was five years old. She had more than 50% scalp hair loss. And, you know, the the parents were, the mother was very nice, but very nervous. And one of the dermatologists I work with who has a lot of experience in children, he said, Jim, they don't want to have the injections and they really don't want to jump to anything systemic. Use clobetazole. And topical monoxidil, get them, get' them the foam, don't be afraid about the percentage and after a while, you may want to go to the clobazole every other day or a few times a week, and I was amazed that when a little girl five years old comes up and hugs you and grabs your hand <laughs> and acts like you're their best friend it it really was a I had never used them together like that. So it's interesting that, that you do that, right? Um, so we got past that. And now we have patients that have severe alopecia areata of the scalp. They may have, you know, eyelash loss, eyebrow loss, maybe not. And one of the things that I've enjoyed about reading the data on these newer drugs is, you know, with PASI score and EZ score and somebody gives you a number, I think for a a lot of dermatologists out there, they can't picture the patient. What does an easy 22 look like? Or what does a PASI 16 look like? But with the SALT score, severity of alopecia loss tool, right? I learned on your podcast, the L is for loss, right? Um, the SALT score, that number basically tells you the percentage of hair loss on the scalp, Right right? That's right. Right. So if it's, if you have a salt 50, they've lost 50%, right? A salt 80, they've lost 80%, correct? That's right. Right. So that number, you could visualize what you're seeing in the clinic. So that, that helps with that. So can we go, go through the two agents, baricitinib and rilicitinib? knowing that realsitinib moves approved for adolescents and adults and baricitinib only in adults with severe, both with severe. Now that was defined as a SALT score of 50 at baseline, at least 50 at baseline, correct? That's right. In the studies though, they had a lot more than that, didn't
1: they? That's right. These were two really good studies because patients in both of these studies had quite severe alopecia. The mean salt scores were anywhere from 85 to 90. So it's quite a fair study in the sense that we're starting with patients with quite severe alopecia to begin with. And so the feeling here is that if these agents can grow hair with this sort of starting point, that's really significant. And so both were placebo-controlled trials. The baricitinib studies were divided into two studies, which were fairly similar. In total, maybe 1,200 or so patients. And the endpoints of both of these studies are what proportion of patients get to a salt score less than 20? So
0: 80% hair growth. And the data is pretty. Didn't a fair amount start with almost complete scalp hair loss? So, oh, and there was a lot of patients with totalis. I think in both of the studies, correct.
1: There was, I think there's around 15% or so of 20% that that had very severe hair loss. And after about a year, roughly 40% or so of these patients are achieving this 80% regrowth endpoint. And so the data is really encouraging that a large percentage of people that would probably not be helped to the same degree with, you know, many of our agents uh, are, are getting some pretty good regrowth.
0: Yeah, and a lot of the agents we had were immunosuppressives, or you're certainly not going to lose, use long-term systemic corticosteroids. And and I remember cases like that, it was always frustrating. But the trials, there was difference in terms of when they determined the primary endpoint, which is somewhat artificial because you're forced into doing that. To get the approval, right? You have to have a, a point where you're comparing to the placebo. You're not going to go with placebo forever on, on these people. That's somewhat inhumane, but you're forcing that. But you know you're going to have to treat longer. And if you go longer, you're going to get better results, right? Like you said, the 40% or so at a year, at 24 weeks, I think one of them was 24 weeks, one of them was 36 weeks. You, sh- you saw a big difference from the placebo. But you still know you're going to have to go longer and pick up better results, correct?
1: That's right. And, you know, at first go, it's kind of frustrating that these two trials have these different endpoints because what we want to do as as dermatologists is compare, compare, compare. Um, so, but as we go out to a a year, 48 weeks, 52 weeks, we we do get some ability to compare and they seem somewhat similar. But what's been so great about the baricitinib trials and the great work that's done by uh, Dr. King and presented by Dr. Senna is that they're following these patients now up to two years. And so we're getting this long-term data. And, you know, when I'm sitting with parents or I'm sitting with patients, I'm saying in the back of my mind, we probably need this drug 20, 30, 50 years for you um, and I have two years of great data, so it's promising. But we got to keep extending that those right. long term studies.
0: So getting to those conversations because we know the Janus kinase inhibitors, and and we're in young, typically younger populations of patients that have not the kind of comorbidities that make them exposed to what's in the box warnings quite as often. We can't say they're zero, right? But but overall, the safety has been very favorable. Thus far, as far as what we can see, what how, how do you broach that discussion? You have a, a 21-year-old that's there, and the parent's coming in with them because everybody's concerned. In some cultures, you'll have several yep. people, right? That's uh, right? And they're there because they're, they're concerned, and you're talking to them now about utilizing either of these drugs, and they've looked them up. They go, what's this? There's all these risks. How do you... How do you carry out that conversation? Because not that you're going to force it on them, but you know it's really likely going to help this 21-year-old, male or female, right?
1: Yeah. And and I let patients know that there's a lot of information that we do know, and there is some information that we don't know. But what I feel so far with all the data that we're gathering is that safety seems to be pretty good. And I let patients know that when we first started using these medications in 2015 or 16 in alopecia areata, the only data we could look at is what's happening in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. And now we have- That, was, that was three
0: times that age, right? <laughs> yeah. That were in their 60s, right?
1: Yeah. That's right. And so I let patients know a little bit about those studies, that they're 50 and over with rheumatoid arthritis, with all these issues. And we kind of look at that data and say, does this apply to you you know the 21 year old patient in front of me and so i let patients know quite you know candidly that um, this is how our thinking is changing and now we have studies in alopecia and those studies are encouraging in that you know we're not seeing the increased heart problems we're not seeing uh, good indication of increased cancers although we're watching that data closely we're not seeing the blood clots uh, and for me, that's really encouraging so far with the, you know the baricitinib data uh, and the ritlicitinib data as well. But I let patients know that we're up to two years with baricitinib and we're up to one year with ritlicitinib. So if some of these issues are going to arise after four, five, six years, we're not there yet. But I let patients know that the dermatology community is following this information closely and we're taking it seriously and so far it's it's very encouraging
0: so jeff you you you're trying to make sure that patients give this an adequate inadequate trial um but not everybody's going to respond at the same pace and and i know sometimes maybe the first couple of months you may not really see a lot right um maybe maybe you see nothing for a little while. So what do you tell them is the minimum time that they should give this before they think, okay, this is not working?
1: I'd really like patients to give it six months. And that's sort of a time that allows us to be reasonably confident if we're not seeing results that this isn't the right plan. But I also let patients know that we may see growth at three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, because what's so surprising about these JAK inhibitors is that some patients do have such rapid growth. But I let patients know, and I I let patients know that if we're seeing partial growth at six months, that there's things that we can do yet again. And so there's alterations in the treatment plan that that we can do uh, to further enhance growth.
0: Like, Like what? What would be an alteration in the treatment plan?
1: So one of the things that I'm always thinking about is, should we be adding oral minoxidil to this plan? Should we be adding at any point steroid injections to this plan? And if we're going to have really robust regrowth with the JAK inhibitor itself, I don't want to use those if we don't have to, because what a wonderful thing when we can get, you know, such great results with just these agents alone, but there are these other options. And then we always have in the back of our mind that we can switch Jack inhibitors as well. And the new data is teaching us that, wow, by switching Jack inhibitors in a patient that didn't respond super well, sometimes you
0: can get even further growth. Right. Um, So do do we have data? Because I find oral minoxidil to to be fabulous. I stopped taking oral finasteride. It's a long story, but I didn't feel good on it after 15, 20 years. And I stopped it, restarted it. I was having the same problems. I stopped it. And I decided to go on oral minoxidil, and a few friends that do a lot of hair encouraged it, and I think it's been fabulous. I'm on two and a half milligrams twice a day. I started with once a day. But is there data? Now, that's androgenetic, which runs in my family, but I've been fighting it my whole life. You know, this is all me, right? Never surgically touched. Uh, The first time I lost a hair, Jeff, you know, saw her in the shower... Man, you know, I was I was an eight-year-old kid on finasteride, you know, whatever, um, exaggerating. But the point being, minoxidil does a great job, but does it help in alopecia areata in your experience?
1: Yeah, so we don't have great, great data um, to back that up, but there is reasonable anecdotal data and so the use of topical minoxidil in patchy alopecia areata um, you know seems quite reasonable we really do need better studies and there are case reports and small studies which support uh, topical minoxidil and oral minoxidil but we really do need better studies the great thing about the use of oral minoxidil in uh, patients of of many ages, but especially the alopecia patient that's 20 and 30, is that these doses tend to be really well tolerated and um, side effects are, are generally really low. And so it's in some practitioners' hands Something they start right away. My preference is to wait, simply because, gee, if we get such great results with the drug alone, let's not add anything else.
0: But what I'm hearing is, anecdotally, if you've had to use it along with one of the one of the JAK inhibitors or the JAK three uh, tech inhibitor ritalsenib in that case, or JAK one two barasitenib, whichever, uh, that you're you feel it it can add additional benefit in patients that may be being a little sluggish response. Right. with the jug. Okay. That's so right. that's great. Okay. Now, okay. They're all excited. You know, you're likely going to, uh, you know, keep on going. And, and I try not to say to people, are you going to be on this forever? That may scare them away before they get started. You can stop it if you ever want to, but my hope is that they're going to continue on if they're not having any difficulty. You're getting your suggested laboratory monitoring. They're on schedule with the standard recommendations, right? If the patient asks you, if I didn't do anything, what would be the chance that I'd regrow hair if they started at assault 50 or worse, if I did nothing?
1: Yeah. So it really depends a lot on a number of things. It depends on um, how long they've had the alopecia. It depends on their family history um, and other treatments sometimes that they've tried. But you know, if someone comes in to see me and they've had alopecia totalis for six years, dad has uh, alopecia totalis, and there's a strong family history of thyroid disorders and rheumatoid arthritis and other autoimmune diseases, the chances of, of spontaneous regrowth in this individual, et cetera, is, is really low. And so we know that the medication is, is contributing. Um, and someone who's- I've only- I read
0: that it's less than 10%. Right. Definitely. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. And someone who's lost hair just a few months. Um, sometimes we don't start Jack inhibitors right away simply because the chances of spontaneous growth is so high. Um, and so it really is as we approach six months and nine months that those chances become less and less. And there's no right or wrong answer, but... What's so interesting about these placebo-controlled trials with the JAK inhibitors is that six percent in the baricitinib group and two percent in the ritlicitinib group, the placebo group, had regrowth, and so there is this fascinating placebo response that occurs uh, with you know spontaneous regrowth in advanced alopecia. So we have to keep that in mind.
0: Yeah, it just it's just is that enough to depend on, you know, it as compared to starting therapy. Jeff, this has been fascinating. I am gonna come back to you because I I have more questions on alopecia areata and some other alopecias, but I wanna thank you for your time today. But I know you're busy. You have a waiting room full of people that wanna grow more hair, so I don't wanna hold you back. Well, thanks so much for this invitation. Thank you for listening to this episode of Derms and Conditions. If you have any questions, please email us at podcast at dermsquared.com. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at D-E-R-M-S-Q-U-A-R-E-D.com. Podcast at dermsquared.com.